Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. This morning, I encourage you to take your Bibles once again and turn to the end of the Old Testament or toward the end of the book of Zechariah. We're in the home stretch of our study in this book, if you will. It's, we're moving through the final oracle of God's promises to his people Israel as he lays out his plan to bring about redemption for his people. Last week, we saw particularly that God the creator of heaven and earth, will use his power and his authority to defend and protect his people, to defeat the nations arrayed against them, and will then pour out his spirit of grace to bring Israel to genuine repentance as they look on him whom they pierced, leading to a fountain of inexhaustible cleansing and forgiveness for sins. This week we turn to Zechariah 13, which is really a a continuation of what we saw last week. Most commentators will tell you that it almost doesn't really need a chapter division here. It's continuing the same theme. And so this morning we're really picking up to hear more details on the same theme, that God will act to cleanse and to save his people. We pick up in verse 1 and we'll read the full chapter, chapter 13 together and encourage you to read along with me in your Bibles. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I am a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish. And one third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for your word. Your word which you gave and promise to Israel which you have and are fulfilling. And your word, which you give us this morning, would you encourage and challenge and comfort our hearts 
Would you call us to know you as Savior? And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Many of you, like me, have read C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia books. I've read these books with my mom growing up and then again on my own, and now we've read them to our children. And Lewis's books, like some others, are rare treasures. Each time I read them, I appreciate anew their brilliance and their insights. And I've always particularly appreciated The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the fifth in the Chronicles of Narnia series. And you may remember, if you've read these books, that the main characters, Edmund and Lucy, are joined on their journey by their bratty little cousin, Eustace Clarence Scrub. And Lewis says that he was a a mean and, and selfish and cowardly little boy who almost deserved such a name. And when Eustace runs off and goes into a cave, he is transformed into a dragon, a visible image of the sin that has shaped his heart. And he slowly, in looking at himself, realizes his sin and grows to hate his deformed self. And he attempts to rip off his dragon hides, but for every layer he rips off, he finds that there's more dragon underneath. A great comment on the depths of our sinfulness. And so as Eustace faces the reality that he cannot fix himself, Aslan, the Christ figure, comes and says, you will have to let me do that. And Eustace describes what happens this way. He says, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. He peeled the beastly stuff right off and there it was lying on the grass. And then he caught hold of me and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that I'd turned into a boy again. And from that moment, Eustace is a changed boy. He's now kind and humble and courageous. Because the story describes a process of genuine repentance and grief over sin which then through Christ's work in us and for us leads to a deep cleansing to the core of our being, not only forgiving our sin, but also changing our hearts and lives and remaking us in Christ's image so that we can live anew through his work in us. And what Lewis describes as a fantasy story, God promises to Israel here in Zechariah 13. Because through the shepherd who is struck with God's own sword, God will open a fountain of cleansing to purify his people, both from their sin and the guilt of their sin, but also to refine them and cleanse their lives as he restores them to covenant relationship with himself. Now this passage this morning is really broken into two sections, both of which declare God's cleansing work in his people, and we'll look at each. But we'll start with verses 1 through 6, where God expounds on the fountain of cleansing that is opened for the house of David. Last week we looked at this fountain of cleansing, and we saw that the cleansing from sin began with an act of God. God declared that he himself would pour out his spirit of grace on his people, and that his spirit would change their hearts and bring about grief over their sin, and that this genuine repentance would be the key 
to opening this fountain of cleansing which would cleanse the house of David from sin and uncleanness. And Zechariah made it clear that this repentance and this fountain of cleansing would revolve around one whom Israel themselves would pierce. If you fast forward to the Gospels, you can almost see the pieces of prophecy clicking together in the Apostle John's mind as he looks at Jesus hanging on the cross and he watches the soldiers approach with a spear and pierce Jesus' side so that water and blood pours out. And John declares that in that moment, the words of Zechariah 13 are fulfilled. And this is the hope for Israel and also for every one of us who would come to Christ by faith. That in Christ, through Christ's death in our place, God opens a fountain of forgiveness sufficient for all the sins in any sin of those who put their faith in Him. If you've ever worked on a car or maybe had to put a chain back on your bicycle and you get grease on your fingers and then you come inside and try to wash your hands, and how many times can you get maybe a lot of it off, but there's some that no matter how much you scrub, just doesn't seem to come off. And yet, there are no depths of sinful grime which cannot be entirely washed clean in this abundant fountain of cleansing that comes through Christ. And Paul, as he reflects on the fountain of cleansing that comes through Christ, declares in Romans 5 that if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many, so that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And that's the great hope of forgiveness, of cleansing, and of salvation held out to the people of Israel and to any who will come and put their faith in Christ. But the cleansing that God provides in this fountain from Christ does not just wash away the stain of our sin or the guilt of our sin. Zechariah goes on in verses 2 through 6 to describe how this cleansing also breaks the power of sin so that genuine repentance leads to a real holiness in the lives of God's people. If verse 1 of chapter 13 declares the glories of our justification, our declaration is forgiven and righteous in God's sight because of Christ's death in our place, verses 2 through 6 then describe our sanctification, our lives that bear the fruit of holiness as God works in his people. And Zechariah says in verse 2, as he describes this for the people of Israel, he says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. Now, it's important for us to understand God is not condemning all prophets here. He's condemning false prophets or those prophets filled with the spirit of uncleanness. And I think if you were to go back and reread the Old Testament, the story of Israel leading up to the exile, what you would see is that idols and false prophets are perhaps the two greatest influences and reasons for Israel's turn away from the Lord and into sin, leading them to exile. And so here, idolatry and false prophets represent sin as a whole as the greatest maybe examples of their sin in those days, which God says he will remove from the land on that day. 
I'll remind you just as a, as a reminder from last week or as a note if you weren't here, that on that day is the key phrase throughout these chapters that Zechariah is looking ahead to. The day of God's salvation and judgment. And whereas in the Old Testament, the prophets saw one great day of the Lord, in the New Testament we find that this day happens in two stages. As Christ comes in his person to die and rise again, and as we wait for him to come again on the last day. And so we expect God to fulfill these words in and between those comings. But on that day, God will remove from the land these sins of idolatry and false prophecy. And notice that idols are not just smashed or removed from the land, but Zechariah says Israel shall not even remember the idols or their names anymore. This is an expression of complete cleansing from sin. And I think you and I can attest to the way sins retain a certain measure of attractiveness in our minds, even as we resolve to give them up, tempting us to return. But God declares here that he will not only end idolatry, he will purify his people to the extent that idols are not even remembered anymore. And then God's people will also be cleansed from false prophets so that the whole nation readily puts a false prophet to death. And Zechariah says that even the father and mother who bore a false prophet will put them to death if they prophesy falsely. Now maybe that sounds harsh, Maybe we think, boy, how does that represent holiness? But that's exactly what God called his people Israel to do in Deuteronomy chapter 13. He said that if any man prophesies falsely to turn Israel away from the Lord, that anyone, everyone in the nation should come to that person and be willing to put them to death, even the father and mother who bore him. And it's in an expression that every person of Israel would be committed in their hearts and loyal to the Lord and to his word and would value holiness to the Lord above even their own children if their own children would turn them to sin and wickedness. And so Zechariah is prophesying a complete obedience to God's word in Deuteronomy 13 here. And those who had prophesied falsely would be so ashamed of their sin and this day that they would seek to hide and erase their past participation in it. They will no longer put on the cloak, the hairy cloak of of prophecy. And if someone comes to them and asks if they were a prophet, they would say, oh no. They would be more willing to say that they were slaves tilling the soil than that they were a false prophet. And they would be more willing to say that they had gotten the cuts on their back in the houses of their friends than to admit that they were marks of the pagan and idolatrous worship. Here again is a picture of genuine, thorough repentance that detests sin. And this comes about as a result of God's work in the lives of his people as he cleanses them of sin. And I think if we look over these six verses, we see such a beautiful summary of the salvation and cleansing that God offers to any who will come in the name of Jesus Christ, who will put their faith in him. God's free grace is poured out on us through Christ's blood, and it overflows to cover and cleanse all sin. There are no prerequisites or limits to coming to Christ in faith and seeking forgiveness. 
God's grace, if we are united to Christ by faith, is a free grift that increases and abounds far above all sin. And yet, God's grace does not leave us in our sin. Those God cleanses, he purifies and works in to remove sin that they might live lives of holiness. And so, if a person looks at their life and sees no holiness and no desire to obey God, no desire to renounce sin, however imperfectly, it begs the question, is God at work in you? Which begs the question, have I entrusted my heart and my life to Christ? But on the flip side is the promise of this passage, a beautiful promise that for those who come to Christ, who know the remnants of sin, who are still at work in our hearts and Satan in our flesh's temptation day after day, God promises that if we come to Christ by faith, he is at work to remove our sin in an ever-growing process of sanctification that will be completed when we stand in Christ's presence on the last day. So that as God's people, we ought to thank him and praise him for the work that he has done in Christ's blood, for the work he is doing in our life, and for the work that he will do in bringing to completion this cutting off of all sin in our hearts and our lives. This is the fountain of cleansing that God pours out through his spirit of grace. It's what he promises to his people Israel and what he promises to all in the nations who will come to him by faith. But chapter 13 then ends, if we look to the next section of verses 7 through 9, with a poetic summary of these two chapters. Verses 7 through 9 are a three-verse poem that declare God's purpose for Israel. So let's look at these verses. There's a, there's a praise song, and I was going to call it an old praise song, but it's from the year 2000, so I guess that says something about my perspective if I consider that old. There's a praise song that describes the cross as a wonderful, tragic, mysterious tree. And I think these three adjectives are a perfect summary of verse 7, in which God cries out to his sword with urgency and with eagerness to awake, to get up, and to strike my shepherd, the man who stands next to me. The phrase, the man who stands next to me, is a phrase of endearment, a phrase used of a peer who's marked by closeness and fellowship. Surely no human being can be described as the one who stands next to the eternal God. Only one who is equal in divinity could be described by a term of intimate fellowship like this. And so mystery, mystery of mysteries, we find unity and distinction in the Godhead The promise that the one who stands next to the eternal God will be the one who will come as his shepherd to save his people. But this appears to be a tragic mystery. Because we would expect, perhaps, God to cry with eagerness for his sword to awake against the nations. But how would we ever expect God to call with eagerness to his sword to awake against his shepherd, against the one he had promised to send to be the cornerstone, the secure peg who would lead and save his people, to awake against the one who stands next to him. God here is inviting the sword 
to strike even into the perfect unity and love of the Godhead. It seems like it should be a contradiction in the character or the person of God. And yet, wonder of wonders, it is this sword blow that opens the fountain of cleansing and brings salvation to Israel. And so God, not with reluctance, but with an eagerness for that day, calls the sword to awake and to strike his companion in a wonderful, tragic, mysterious act that opens the floodgates of redemption for all who will put their faith in Christ. God then notes that when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will be scattered and God's hand will be turned against the little ones. Many of you probably immediately recognize this from the Easter story and remember Jesus on the night that he was betrayed standing in the Mount of Olives and as Judas and his band of soldiers come up the hill, Jesus says that the disciples will be scattered and he quotes this verse. And the disciples are certainly scattered, aren't they? Mark tells of one who flees naked. Peter denies Christ and then leaves weeping and the others go into hiding. But God also says he will turn his hand against his own people, that suffering will come against Israel because Jesus is crucified. But in this process of suffering, God declares that he has two purposes that he will be working out. For two-thirds of Israel, or as the the Hebrew literally says, for two portions of Israel, this suffering is punishment that leads to death. Zechariah specifically says that two portions will be cut off and will perish. These are words of covenant penalty, of destruction that comes when God's covenant is broken and his wrath is deserved. And so God is foretelling that many in Israel will perish without salvation, cut off from God because of their rejection of him and his shepherd. And yet, God also promises that one portion, that one-third, shall be saved. And for them, the suffering does not lead to destruction, but to sanctification. He says that the suffering for them will be putting them through the fire to refine them as silver or gold is refined. See, in God's providence, all face suffering and difficulty. But the evaluation of that suffering depends on God's purposes on the, and on the end result. For some, it is punishment that leads to death, but for others, it is refining and testing and strengthening that leads to life. And so God is here promising that for one portion of his people, Israel, for this remnant of God's people, for the ones who are brought to repentance and to trust the fountain of cleansing, God promises that he will again draw near to them and answer them. God will be reconciled to them and will restore his relationship with them. His steadfast love and faithfulness will lead to rest and joy and fellowship with the God of heaven and earth. It is this portion that he will pour out the fountain of cleansing and will cleanse them of sin and will lead to a full cleansing of of holiness in their lives. And it is for this portion of God's people that he will again declare the words, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. And we have to remember God's word 
We have to think back to remember how significant those words are in this passage. Because back in Exodus chapter 6, when God first made his covenant with the nation of Israel as they prepared to leave Egypt, of course, he'd articulated his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But here, the nation of Israel, as they prepare to leave Egypt, God declares in Exodus 6, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of Egypt. That was the foundation of Israel's hope. And yet, when Israel broke the covenant by their sin and their idolatry, God issued the heartbreaking statement that would have been unimaginable in Hosea chapter 1, declaring You are not my people, and I am not your God. And this seems to be the end, but it is not. Because here in Zechariah, just as in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, God promises that this is not the end of the story, but there will be a remnant. There will come a time again when these words of covenant relationship will be renewed. And they will come because God strikes his own shepherd. They will come after suffering refines his people. They will come to a remnant who, through faith in Jesus, are restored to relationship with their faithful God. And so it is to and through this faithful remnant who believe in Christ that God keeps all his promises to Israel. And we've begun to see that come true on Pentecost and through the ages as many from Israel put their faith in Christ. And as I believe Paul indicates in Romans 11, we expect to see many more from Israel come to know him and to see the fulfillment of his covenant promises. And then, of course, even as we trace God's faithfulness to Israel, all of us from every nation can hear the beautiful words in 1 Peter chapter 2, a stunning invitation that any from any nation are welcome to put their faith in Jesus and be saved from their sin and welcomed into this covenant relationship with God and hear these same words of covenant commitment. As Peter declares to all who trust Christ, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What a promise. What a salvation. It's open to any who will put their faith in Christ. Well, as we come to the end of this chapter, let me end with two words of application for us this morning. First, this passage identifies idols and false prophets as two of the main influences that lead people away from God and into sin. And though if you look around, you won't see many statuettes on shelves today, perhaps, and you won't see many walking around in camel hair cloaks, as this passage identifies, idolatry and false prophets are still, I believe, the things most likely to lead us away from God and into sin. Consider idolatry. What is an idol? It is something we love or desire more than God, so that our love for it pulls us away from our obedience to God. 
think about this when I think about an experience many of you have probably had with your children or grandchildren. You know that moment when you're playing on the floor with a one-year-old and your relationship is great. You're laughing and having fun and playing together until that moment when the one-year-old reaches the finger toward the outlet and you grab the hand and pull it away and say no and suddenly your relationship is on the rocks. They scream and they they cry and they try to yank their hand out of yours because they just want that oh-so-desired experience of an electric shock. That's a slow-motion picture of idolatry. That there is something that we, who are so often like spiritual toddlers, let things and people and freedoms and self-fulfillments that we want and think will lead to our happiness lead us to shake off God and to try to push him out of the way, breaking relationship with the one who loves us for what we think will help us in life more than obedience to God right now. Will we see the immaturity of our own idolatries? Will we see this in our lives, whether it's a relationship we know is not godly, Maybe a commitment to career success that compromises our integrity or hinders our family's holiness. An activity that takes priority over worship, either in our hearts or in our lives, or takes priority over our time with the Lord. Freedom to do what I'm drawn to do, or maybe the material delights that pique our desire more strongly than honoring God and loving others. Idolatry is still a great risk for us. And false prophets, a false prophet is one who claims to speak truth, but speaks contrary to God's word. And once again, there are false prophets shouting at us loudly from every direction today. There are false teachers telling us that, yes, we should honor God, but God's word itself is an outdated document whose particulars don't apply to us anymore today. And we would be better off just applying what we know now through the lens of God's love. And surely we can get to a good place. And so they would call for a strong egalitarianism or an acceptance of any self-identity we choose for a doctrine of tolerance and acceptance as our guiding principle rather than sticking with Scripture. There are false teachers telling us that worshiping God with real faith should lead to comfort and success that echo the world's position that rejects God's good purposes in suffering. There are false teachers pulling us to stake our hopes on political parties and ideologies, whether conservative or progressive, rather than in the gospel and our first loyalty, which is to Him and our citizenship in heaven. And we need God's Spirit poured out into our hearts, drawing us deeper into reliance on His Word, our one source of truth, so that we reject false teaching around us. See, our only hope for holiness is our love for and our time in and our commitment to the truth of God's Word. If the voices of false teachers or idolatry pull at us, they will pull us from our Lord and into sin. Well, second and final application for us this morning. Would you end by just briefly meditating with me on the beauty of God's covenant promise 
that is made to us if we will come in faith in Christ this morning. On the astounding glory of being told that if we come to Christ by faith, that God himself, the King of kings and Lord of lords, will answer us when we call and will look on us and call us my people and invite us to call him my God. Pastor Rick Phillips encourages us to see three things about God's promise at the end of this passage. First, Phillips says, we should see that God's goal in this costly saving work is nothing less than true fellowship with our hearts. This promise that we will be his people and he will be our God is the marriage vow of the loving God and the bride he has won. And God continues to work in our hearts until our greatest joy is to bask in the knowledge that God has cherished us to himself. Oh, the blessing of fellowship and communion with God that are offered in Christ. Second, Phillips writes that God makes clear that suffering and trials are his means of bringing us to this desired goal. Just as gold is fired in heat until it's pure, this, that is suffering, is God's process for making us his true people. And his goal in all of our trials is to test and purify our faith, separating us from sins in the world, until finally he gazes on us and sees his own image, and we have attained that spiritual excellence that he has ordained for us, the beauty for which our salvation is designed. God is seeking this goal that he has ordained through the process of suffering. And finally, Phillips argues, these verses demonstrate God's love that is worthy of our love in return. As Phillips puts it, God is not a sappy lover, but God is the first and the last of the red-hot lovers who pursue his people. And he desires and is worthy of our whole love and devotion in return. What a steadfast love God has for his people. And so, brothers and sisters, may we reject sin's pull toward destruction. And may we know that union and that communion with God through Jesus Christ, the one whom the sword struck for our salvation. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for what you have done for us in Christ. Oh, the mystery that into the Godhead would come a sword, that Father would call on the sword to strike the Son, that we might be saved through his blood. And oh, Father, we pray that you would continue to be at work in us, to cleanse us from sin's guilt and stain, but also to cleanse us from sin's power, to make us more and more righteous in your sight, that we might reflect you and how we look forward with hope to the day when you will complete this process in our lives. Father, may we live for you. May your great love in us bring a love and devotion in our hearts to you for the glory of your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you.
And may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.